The History Channel Original Podcast. History This Week, May 30th, 1921. I'm Sally Helm. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, Dick Rowland is at work, shining shoes at a pool hall downtown. Rowland is a Black teenager, and this isn't the part of the city where he lives. Tulsa, at this point, is extremely segregated. And home for Roland is in a part of town called Greenwood, north of the train tracks. Greenwood is a thriving Black neighborhood. On Greenwood Avenue, you could find the Stratford Hotel, the largest Black-owned hotel in the United States, 54 rooms, drugstore, barbershop, restaurant, and banquet hall. There was the Williams Dreamland Theater, which featured silent films and live concerts. From the Dreamland Theater and other venues, jazz music would pour into the streets at night, providing a soundtrack to what was known as Black Wall Street. In Greenwood, people know who Dick Rowland is. He's a former star halfback from Tulsa's Booker T. Washington High. A sharp dresser, he's spent some of the tips from his shoeshine job on handmade suits and a diamond ring. So people in Greenwood call him Diamond Dick. But downtown, south of the tracks, a lot of white people see him as just a black shoeshine. Most of Roland's customers are white. And at the building where he works, all of the restrooms are whites only. So he has a standing agreement with the owner of a nearby office building, which has one of the only restrooms in the area that black people are allowed to use. Roland walks over there this afternoon. It's Memorial Day, so lots of stores are closed, but people are still out on Main Street. There was a parade there this morning. School kids, American flags, heavy rain that put a bit of a damper on things. Now the weather's hot and humid. Roland goes around to the back of the Drexel office building and gets into the elevator. There's one other person inside, a white teenager named Sarah Page. She's the elevator operator. The door closes. No one besides Roland and Page will ever know exactly what happened, but police seem to have treated it as a mishap. In a commonly told version of the story, Roland tripped and stepped on Paige's foot. She screamed. That's the one thing right there that really sets this whole thing off. Within a day, the story about Roland and Paige and the elevator has been blown so far out of proportion that it becomes the spark for one of the worst nights of racial violence in our nation's history. Today, the story of Greenwood, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, the site of the infamous Tulsa Race Massacre. How, just 50 years after the end of slavery in the United States, did Black Americans establish a thriving community in the segregated South? And why was it decimated on one horrific night? This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Professor Kalenda Eaton teaches history at the University of Oklahoma. She grew up in California, but she has a family connection to Tulsa. 
her grandmother moved there in the early 1900s. And when Eaton was a graduate student doing research on African Americans in the West, she's reading about the Tulsa Race Massacre, and she thinks, wait a minute. I was looking at the dates, and I realized that these dates overlapped with my grandmother's time there. And I asked her specifically, I was like, well, when when did you actually move? I was like, maybe I was misremembering something. And then I started to ask more questions. And then that's when I found out that there is this, you know, whole story that my grandmother had just been holding on to for years. She'd actually moved to Tulsa as a kid just about nine months after the massacre. And a close family member, her aunt, had lived through it. Eaton had never heard those stories. We also spoke for this episode with Professor Kendra Field, who said that kind of reluctance to talk about this period is really common. There was a great amount of fear that something like this might happen again. And so there was, in many cases, a good deal of silence in the decades that followed. Field teaches history at Tufts University. She, like Eaton, has studied the Tulsa Race Massacre. And she also has family roots in Oklahoma. Field's grandmother was born soon after the massacre in a town near Tulsa, one of many vibrant Black settlements in Oklahoma. And that's what she heard stories about when she was growing up. Really kind of spectacular stories of Black landownership and the all-Black towns. You know, my grandmother grew up with Black doctors, Black teachers, Black principals, attorneys, obstetrician. So it was about this all-Black world that the Greenwood District of Tulsa was part of, but, but not the only part of. That all-Black world in Oklahoma started to form decades earlier. It's a story, in large part, about land. After the Civil War ends in 1865, the Reconstruction era begins. A period of real racial progress. Constitutional amendments formally abolish slavery and give Black men the vote. Black Americans are elected to political office at many levels— And there's also a promise made, a famous one. It becomes known as 40 Acres and a Mule. A Union general issues a proclamation near the end of the war that a bunch of land seized from Confederate landowners will be redistributed to newly freed Black families. President Lincoln approves the order. Professor Eaton told us, this is huge. Land was gold, right? If you had land, if you had property, then you were two steps closer to this, you know, proverbial American dream. Pass that on down, you know, throughout your generations in the same way that we think of in terms of home ownership even today. But the promise is short-lived. After Lincoln is assassinated, President Andrew Johnson goes back on this plan. There's this reversal. The land is not redistributed. You have Southern landowners who successfully argue for their land to be returned to them, and it is, you know, and thousands of African-Americans are kind of just sent adrift with nothing. In general, as Reconstruction proceeds, a white backlash builds, and many of the gains that had been made are lost. Field put it in stark terms. She said, after emancipation... One of the things that's different is that there's no longer an economic stake, as far as white uh, landowners are concerned, in keeping Black men, women, and children alive, right? So you have a real um, different kind of racial violence that takes place in the South after Reconstruction. Different and incredibly brutal. 
You can date the end of Reconstruction to the moment when incoming President Rutherford B. Hayes withdraws federal troops from the South. After that, Eaton told us, You have this kind of what I would describe as kind of just sheer lawlessness in the name of Southern rule. The KKK is gaining power. There are lynchings across the South. You have all of these things that uphold segregation and make it really clear to the African-American community that uh, they were going to continue to be in jeopardy in the South and there was really not going to be much protection. Discriminatory laws make it hard for African-Americans to get any kind of economic foothold. And without a way to get land of their own, many are being forced into exploitative sharecropping arrangements. And then you have people who are saying, you know, there has to be another place that we can be free. And so many African-Americans begin to look west. In 1879, Tens of thousands of African-American people from the South head to Kansas, looking for a better life. This becomes known as the Exoduster Movement. It's a play on the biblical Exodus, when Moses and the Israelites fled the tyranny of the Egyptian pharaoh. And dust for the windswept plains they were heading towards. An African-American businessman and politician named E.P. McCabe helped spearhead the idea. The whole thing was highly coordinated and planned. There were blueprints for what the towns would look like. This was not kind of just a wandering out into this space. Still, building new all-black towns in the middle of the plains was not easy. Here's Field. There are stories of people arriving thinking that it's going to be, you know, something that resembles a town and instead seeing all these holes with smoke coming out of them, these dugouts that people had created to to survive in while they set up. Some of these towns pinned their hopes on the railroad. If the newly laid tracks ended up passing through, that would be an economic boom. Sometimes that happened, but other times... The railroad didn't end up coming through these towns that that had all, all this hope associated with them, and then people moved on again to Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Oklahoma was getting a reputation as a place where it was easy for American settlers to get land. Even though, actually, there were already people living on that land. There had been indigenous people living in this region of the country for generations. And by 1880, much of what is now Oklahoma was known as Indian Territory. It was home not just to the Caddo, Osage, and Wichita nations, who had historically lived in this region, but also to the Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Seminole nations. They were originally from the southeastern part of what is now the United States, but had been forced to move in the 1830s as part of President Andrew Jackson's policy of Indian removal. There had also been African Americans living in Indian territory for decades, because some Native Americans had owned slaves. And so, Eaton told us, You have thousands of enslaved African-Americans who are removed to Indian territory as property of Indian owners via the Trail of Tears. And so after emancipation, there was a relatively large population of newly freed African-American people in what is now Oklahoma. Some of them had land granted by the Native American nations where they had been enslaved. African-Americans in Kansas heard about all this happening in Oklahoma. And so it was like, okay, you know, there are a lot of Black folks out here. Let's, Let's see what's going on. As with the move to Kansas, this migration to Oklahoma was planned and coordinated. 
dozens of all-Black towns and settlements spring up. They're designed to be successful, long-lasting, and self-sustaining. There was even a serious proposal at one point to make Oklahoma into an all-Black state. These Black communities begin to thrive. And then in 1901, near the town of Tulsa, someone strikes oil, and the population explodes. From 1900 to 1910, Tulsa grows 13-fold. And a Black business owner named O.W. Gurley decides to capitalize. He moves to Tulsa in 1904. The first business, I believe, was a rooming house, and he ends up with, you know, dozens and dozens of properties. He's able to encourage, this was generally something that was going on in, in the Black towns, there was encouragement of kind of cooperative economics, so offering loans to incoming migrants, offering, you know, a place to stay in the rooming house, trying to help people to invest and to become landowners if they're able to, and most importantly, to keep money within the community. This community would become known as Greenwood. Within like maybe a 10-year period, you have this thriving community, which then becomes known as Black Wall Street. Greenwood was located on the north side of Tulsa, and it rapidly grew to about 40 square blocks in size. It attracted some of the top African-American talent in a variety of fields, law, medicine, education, There were also business people who wanted to develop Greenwood's main commercial district, known as Deep Greenwood. It had anything you could really want in a city. Clubs, grocery stores, restaurants, banks, hotels, beauty parlors, you name it, right? All within this community that are self-sufficient, that are Black-owned, that are catering to the needs and desires of their Black residents. Greenwood's two Black-owned newspapers, the Tulsa Star and the Oklahoma Sun, played a key role in binding the community together. Black newspapers cultivated a sense of community, sense of shared fate, communicating to the larger community what their rights are and when to stand up for those rights. By the 1920s, between 10 and 11,000 African Americans lived in Greenwood. Just 60 years before, many of the people who built this community would have been enslaved. But now, in Greenwood? It's just thriving, and it's this bustling space. There are a lot of archival uh, images, and you just see, you know, people in, you know, business suits going from here to there, and children going to school. So that ability to kind of demonstrate to the to the nation, right, that this is something that is possible and that it's something that has always been possible, but the chances and the opportunities weren't always there. It's something that really also drives that community. Greenwood is enjoying all of this prosperity, but Tulsa is still bitterly segregated, literally divided. The railroad tracks. Always the railroad tracks. Greenwood is north of the railroad tracks. And the part of Tulsa south of the tracks is almost 100% white. Field told us there were lots of other Black communities in Oklahoma that were also thriving, but not right across the tracks from a white community. I think an important part of this story is that it's not the success that makes it unique. It's the visibility of that success within a larger white community. Now, when Greenwood and many of these other Black communities are first established in Oklahoma, the region is still unincorporated territory. But in 1907, 
Oklahoma becomes a state, and the tide begins to turn against towns and communities like Greenwood. This idea of Oklahoma as a more free place, the idea of Oklahoma as a safe haven, begins to come to an end. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Professor Field told us, when Oklahoma becomes a state in 1907, it essentially becomes a southern state in terms of its laws in the Jim Crow era. First, there's a law that bans integrated seating on rail cars. And other Jim Crow laws quickly follow. Segregated schools, limited voting rights. And then Christmas Eve that same year, 1907, Oklahoma witnesses its first recorded lynching of a man named James Garden. And from that point on, there's dozens of more lynchings in the next five years or so. Oklahoma had formerly been a land of racial promise. But Eaton told us, the ethos of many white Oklahomans became... We're going to kind of take, you know, Oklahoma back and and put these folks in their places. The KKK is growing in Oklahoma in these years. Lynchings are common. If a Black person is ever accused of a serious crime, there's a good chance he may not live to stand trial. This was a phenomenon that, you know, took place over and over again that they might be released from the prison and then lynched right before they had the chance to go to trial. Often, police officers and other officials would take part in this. And African-American citizens try to fight back. There were uh, many cases where Black community members would go to the jail to try to protect that person and to prevent them from being lynched. Sometimes defendants would be escorted into the courthouse by a group of armed African-American citizens and African-American veterans. In the later 1910s, those veterans are returning from World War I. They fought for the United States and then returned to this brutally segregated society. Eaton told us, They didn't see really kind of much difference between their duty and their role to protect the nation in their duty and role to protect their own communities and their homes and their families and the citizens of their communities. The year 1919 would see one of the worst periods of racial violence in America's history. 
It's been called Red Summer. Many of the attacks were actually focused on the African-American veterans returning home. Some saw their military service, their obvious patriotism, as a threat to the Jim Crow system and to white supremacy in general. Between April and November, there were at least 97 lynchings in the U.S. and over two dozen episodes of mob violence. In Elaine, Arkansas, as many as 237 African Americans were killed after a group of sharecroppers had organized for better working conditions. In Greenwood, this national tide of hatred runs into the fact that this highly successful Black community exists so visibly, right up against a white community across the tracks. It's not logical, right? There's no logic to it, right? But the bottom line is there has always been this belief that the people of African descent who live within what we now call the United States of America are not supposed to be here. Our outsiders are not what America, quote unquote, actually is or should be, do not belong and need to kind of disappear, go away, evaporate, right? That on top of the very kind of obvious, you know, jealousy and envy, right, of all the success and the money moving through these spaces, coupled together to kind of create what we see in 1921. The spark comes when someone hears Sarah Page scream in that elevator. There's this assumption that's made that Dick Rowland has accosted Sarah Page in the elevator, that he's attacked her in some way. Page later tells the police that's not what happened. But the rumor is going around, and Rowland is taken into custody. The accusation that a Black man has attacked a white woman was a commonplace justification for racial violence. It's everywhere at the time. That that kind of narrative is just everywhere. Between 1882 and 1931, there are at least 3,400 documented African-American citizens who have been lynched. The majority of the cases are accusations of rape, assault in some way, shape, or form, right, against white women, even reckless eyeballing, right? You know, somebody stared at a white woman too long. And while Roland is in jail, a white mob begins to form outside. It was very likely that had they gotten a hold of Dick Roland, they would have taken him and lynched him. Word spreads in Greenwood about what's happening. And soon, a group of armed African-American men arrive at the courthouse to confront the white mob. One of the white men tries to take a gun from one of the black men. And they're fighting over this gun, and the gun goes off. And so then it's like, you know, if Sarah Page's scream wasn't enough of a siren call, then this gun going off is. And so at that point, the Tulsa Race Massacre just kind of begins. The details of the massacre are gruesome and horrifying. Groups of white men drove through the streets of Greenwood, shooting residents on sight. They lit businesses and homes on fire. Airplanes even dropped incendiary bombs. But this wasn't purely mob violence. Tulsa police deputized some of the rioters, gave them weapons. Eyewitnesses even identified police in plain clothes taking part in the massacre. The damage alone, 
paints a picture of the scale of this tragedy. Over 35 blocks of this community is destroyed. And it's very, very systematic, right? Block by block, house by house. People going into houses and looting, destroying physical property, but also, you know, stealing dreams, stealing lives, stealing hopes. They chose to destroy the things that appeared to be emblems of Black success, right, which they considered illegitimate. At least 300 people died, vast majority Black men, women, and children. 800 people injured. Over 8,000 people were made homeless. And remember, the community as a whole was about 10 to 11,000. It's kind of really tragic irony that so many of these individuals had moved there precisely to escape the kind of racial violence that, that they had endured in the Deep South. This story is reported in the press at the time, in both Black and white newspapers. But in the years after, it seems to get lost. Some of this is due to the fact that Tulsa city officials intentionally suppressed the story to avoid damaging the city's image. But many African Americans who lived through the massacre were also hesitant to recount what had happened. In my own work, I talk a lot about shame and pride as being kind of the two emotions that shape things. And these, you know, the black towns and especially Greenwood, these were incredibly prideful places, right, where we talked about black success and talked about black institution building. And, and then there were things that were not talked about that were associated with shame. Ralph Ellison himself was from Oklahoma, and he once wrote, our unknown history doesn't stop having consequences, even though we ignore them. Greenwood did rebuild. But the scars of the massacre have lived on. In recent years, the story has reemerged in politics and popular culture as a horrific example of white supremacist violence. And Greenwood has emerged as an emblem of what might have been but for that violence. So I think Tulsa is so important because it is this kind of shining example of possibility but also a very real example of how, quote-unquote, America, right, has responded to those possibilities for its citizens that don't fit into this kind of narrative of what America is supposed to be. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, Check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.